Hello, welcome to Farmgate. I'm Finlow Castain, the chief editor of 8.9 Hectares and founder of the Food and Global Security Network. As we face into the social, economic and environmental challenges of the coming decades, the way that we share or compete for land will help to forge human success or failure. Environmental breakdown and global population rise has led to a strong focus on food supply chains, but the way that we produce fibre is equally important. At least 60% of our clothes are now made using synthetic petrochemicals chemical-based fabrics, all of which need to be replaced. As a result, natural animal or plant-based fibres will become resurgent on the catwalks and on the high street, so the need to reform and integrate food and fashion supply chains is urgent. Kate havstag Kassad is a farmer, but also the founder of Range Revolution, an Oregon-based company which produces luxury leather handbags and other leather products from certified regenerative ranches. Welcome, Kate. Thank you so much, Finmo, for having me. Kate, nearly two-thirds of the fabrics used to produce our clothes are directly contributing to global warming. What are the alternatives? So approximately 63% of the fiber supply chain is made up of fibers that are petrochemicals or derivatives of. Alternatives to this include natural fibers, cottons, linens, leathers, wools, other protein fabrics, other types of skins. Um, you've also got some cellulose products and some other plant derivative materials that are being uh, bioengineered at this time. Range Revolution is a business built on regenerative leather. What is that? How is regenerative leather defined? Sure. Well, it's a hot topic. What is regenerative these days? So I'll talk about it from the perspective of a, a farmer and um, somebody who's looking at fashion now through that lens. So I would say regenerative leathers are leathers that have come from ranches that manage their land in a way that produce positive ecological outcomes. That includes monitoring of landscapes so that we actually have some data behind making a statement like there's positive ecological outcomes coming from the management of the cattle, which we are now utilizing those hides. I would also argue that a regenerative leather must be a vegetable tanned leather. I'm not so sure about taking a regeneratively raised hide and putting it through a chrome tan process and calling that end product regenerative. You talk about uh, certified regenerative leather. In what way is it certified? In what way are you sort of guaranteeing to the customer that regenerative element? We currently source hides from ranchers that are a part of the Savory Institute's Ecological Outcome Verification Program. And I sort of put my flag in the ground there with EOV because I have been monitoring our farm and ranch landscape using EOV monitoring for the past three, almost four seasons. The reason I really believe in it is because it provides a feedback loop both to the land manager to, you know, course correct if there are things that they are doing that are going the wrong direction, but also it gives us key indicators much bigger than just carbon. I think that a lot of us who are of this space understand that this carbon tunnel vision is not a holistic approach to understanding regenerative outcomes. So EOV is monitoring biodiversity, water infiltration rates, community dynamics, also financial holism. And of course, you know, are we uh, increasing more biomass on landscape, thus sequestering more carbon? So it is a more holistic way to measure regenerative outcomes. Now, you mentioned earlier on the way in which, you know, there is a discussion about what is regenerative and what isn't. And from that perspective, the savoury EOV process is really important in terms of delivering accountability. For you, as somebody who's trying to sell into a market, who is, you know, using that regenerative 
regenerative brand as well as the regenerative process to add value to your products. How important is that accountability and how potentially threatening is the potential for people to call something regenerative when there is no accountability? It's huge and it's happening. We see it in food and now we see it in fiber. The level of greenwashing is something we should all be concerned about, which is why I believe we have to have full traceability in these sourcing supply chains. That is, you know, part of our journey and part of our value proposition at Range Revolution is all of our hides have a provenance journey and we can trace them back to the ranch they came from, thus the EOV data coming off that land. That's critical. And I should say that's being addressed both in sort of some watchdog organizations that are calling out greenwashing and fashion. There's more accountability happening. There's also policy tackling this at this point. The EU actually just passed legislation in December which outlaws people to be sourcing uh, raw materials that can be traced back to any system that leads to deforestation. So we are going to be seeing a lot more companies held accountable to these uh, traceability metrics. That's really interesting. Now, when we think about climate change and nature loss, there are two elements, aren't there? I mean, firstly, there's the unequivocal impact that humans have had on Earth's climate through the burning of fossil fuels. But secondly, there's the way that humans themselves have organised themselves and created systems that increase the localised impacts of these global changes. Now, when we've spoken in the past, you've talked about water and drought as a key challenge for Oregon, but you particularly focus on what you've called the bureaucratic drought. So what's that? And how does regenerative ranching help to solve that problem? Bureaucratic drought is a term I've been using recently that refers to uh, legislation and yeah, self-organization that will lead to a uh, drought that is imposed by yeah, outdated legislation. And an example in our region is that resources are getting more scarce, say water. There will be a, a hard fight to hold on to that resource, even if it is not being applied in its intended use. So the West here in America, most of the West was founded upon a doctrine of prior appropriation in which it was really sort of a first come first serve approach to allocation of irrigation waters. And I live in a brittle environment. So irrigation waters, uh, any use of water out of the rivers should be looked at very critically as to uh, what we are using it for. And um, areas that were once agricultural regions uh, like Bend, Oregon, that have now urbanized and are no longer agricultural regions because their irrigation district was founded first, say in 1901, whereas a, a professional farming community was founded in 1917, they will be first on priority to getting irrigation waters when resources get scarce. Now, as a common sense perspective, it makes no sense for an area that is not an ag region to get a majority of the irrigation waters to leave the farms going dry. But that is bureaucratic drought. And we see that hugely in the West. So how do we use regenerative agriculture to sort of uh, shift and evolve in these times where we've got a bureaucratic drought as well as a climactic drought? I would say that, again, with this lens of holism, when we look at a farm system, we've operated for quite a long time in our region, understanding that we have had this baseline of water availability. And in fact, that's a, a sort of man-made and an incorrect assumption of uh, resources. And so to course correct, what we have had to do on our farm is utilize regenerative agriculture practices and holistic management to restructure into our entire farm system. So whereas we would have expanded our organic vegetable production to meet the market demand and, and the accounts that we were getting, when we took a step back 
and we looked at the allocation of irrigation waters and we saw where the trends are headed without massive legislative change, we understood that um, to have the greatest ecological impact here, the correct answer was not to expand these certain crops like potatoes or winter squash or onions that are uh, water heavy crops. Instead, it was the most holistic decision to expand our grazing operation and increase that side of our business, the grazing of ruminants, the raising of grains to create a closed loop um, hog feed operation. So over the past five years, we've used this sort of regenerative or holistic mindset to pull back and ask rather, what is it that we want to do? And instead, what is the land asking of me? And what are these times asking of me? And that is a regenerative mindset. So it's very much it's a land up approach to uh, not just the way that you farm, but what you farm as well. And by having cattle in the landscape there and managing them regeneratively, you're able to hold more water on your property, restore and maintain soil health, create greater resilience. But of course, you still need those markets to sell those cattle into. And the beef market, of course, is a given. But cattle hides are often just seen as waste. What made you see those hides differently? So these are lots of kind of compounding things that have led me to start Range Revolution, which just became one of those ideas that when you just know you're onto something, you cannot stop thinking about it. You can't put it down. So I would say, you know, as a mid-sized family ranch, there's not a lot of options in the market to how we sell our beef. You know, we've been very small in the past where we've done the farmer's markets and the direct-to-consumer that way. And we're not big enough to sell into commodity beef market. So we've created our own marketplace of direct selling our meats to consumers, um, primarily on the West Coast. But when you're in this business, operating on such small margins, all whole food producers, whether it's vegetables or meat, operate on tiny margins. You pay attention to where you've got unutilized assets that could be increasing your margins. And when you look at the cattle industry, the way that our systems exist right now, only about 65% of a cattle carcass is being utilized. We are not utilizing the hides, we're not utilizing the offal, and we're not utilizing the fat. And if we can start to recapture those unutilized assets, we can start increasing the margins for all producers. And those margins, if we could take a 65% utilization rate and bring it up to 80%, that's a significant difference for a rancher. So that is really the, um, the grounding ethos that pushed me along to solve this leather supply chain problem. Now, I understand that narrative, Kate, but lots of farmers experience you know, similar things there and they're not doing what you do. So what was it about you? What made you want to get into that sort of thing? Do you have a, a fashion background in some way? What, you know, what, why you? I've always believed that design at its best communicates ethos. And um, one of my other businesses that I started when I was about 23, it's called Habstead Hat Company, and I started building custom Western hats. Honestly, it's been my, my joy to develop that business over the last nine years. And so I've always used design to tell the story, communicate with people. There are some things that you can say in words, and there are some things that beauty and art will say much better. That is how I approach design. It's how I approach, in some ways, uh, resistance um, in the best of ways, is through beauty. 
I believe that there's a conversation to have in fashion that we won't connect to people if we stand on our pedestals and shout and point the finger at all that is wrong. Instead, I would rather shine a light and lead by example and let others follow in our path. I love those words that you use. I mean, obviously, Range Revolution is about revolution. You talk about resistance and shouting. You know, it, it, it really is a, a positive response to a problem that you've identified. And I, I think thinking about the leather industry, obviously, when we're talking about food systems, there's a huge variation in the way that food is produced. And I imagine it's the same with leather. So thinking about the leather industry as it operates today, about the existing leather supply chains, how sustainable are they? Can people just switch from a polyester-based coat to a leather jacket and suddenly immediately feel that they've done a good thing? No. <laughs> Unfortunately, we've got so far to go in rebuilding these supply chains to beneficial supply chains. Currently, uh, the majority of the leather in the marketplace for fashion goods come from a very opaque supply chain. It, it's going to be very difficult to rebuild these systems of traceability. And because we understand that the meat industry has been consolidated and it's primarily four corporations that control the majority of processing and meat packing, it's going to take a lot of time to rebuild decentralized systems of aggregation. And that's what we've lost. I'll speak particularly to systems in America. We've lost our manufacturing capacity, we have lost our processing capacity, and we are in a process of rebuilding this. And I'm working with some co-conspirators who are building new mid-size beef processing plants and working with them on rebuilding those systems of aggregation. But what we are in the midst of is a reckoning. We've built a world without any limits, and we have decided that we can scale to these ginormous economies of scale. So those economies of scale are the ones who are the most rewarded in our current systems. It's much easier to aggregate 5,000 hides at a time from a feedlot system than it is to aggregate 300 hides at a time from this mid-sized processor here in Oregon. So we are doing that work, scaling from the ground up. What we've done is we've started a very small system of aggregation, working with three beef processors here in the Northwest, and we are scaling that model up from the ground up. And what does that look so like? What are, the, what are the links in that supply chain? You know, how are you challenging? Because again, you know, we've got the resistance and revolution. You've got co-conspirators working to disrupt <laughs> those supply chains. Uh, so what are those key challenges, you know, both ethically and systematically? And what are you doing differently? So one of the greatest challenges, stage one of preservation of these hides. So you've got to get processors on board who see the long-term value in a project like this. Currently, the mentality of beef processors is that not only do these hides have no value, in fact, they incur costs. They are paying to dispose of them. It's one, a mentality shift, and it's a you need to create relationships with the beef processors because they will be your co-conspirators. We can't build this without them and without them opting in. So those relationships are probably step one. And all those guys, the mid-sized processors, they're also operating on razor-thin margins. So we have to have systems to support them to implement stage one of preservation of hides. So that means they understand on the cutting floor how to properly remove a hide so that we're going to have an end product leather that um, doesn't have too many flaws because of cutting floor process. And then we also need to give them incentives to do stage one of pickling of these hides. They're going to need to take up square footage in their processing plant, and they're going to have manpower needed to take these hides, do some initial fleshing, and get them into the pickling solution. Then we need to rebuild these systems to actually aggregate what is pickled hides 
in these various processors. For us, we're doing this across the Northwest. And then you need to get them to the tannery. And unfortunately, tanneries are also something that we have let go of a capacity for here in the United States. We've only got a handful left we can work with. So honestly, big, big picture, my co-conspirators are people who are thinking about rebuilding these regional systems so that hides aren't traveling from California, Oregon, Washington to Wisconsin and from Wisconsin to Leon, Mexico. But that is where we are at right now, an imperfect place on our path to the end goal, which would be aggregation from the West Coast, a tannery on the West Coast and ideally manufacturing somewhere on the West Coast. But it's going to take quite a while to get there. We've been working with about three to four ranches in aggregation. Uh, We've got a single tannery that we work with, and we have a single manufacturer. Uh, Like all of our farming systems, you know, diversity creates resilience. So we are building and scaling that model up. But I think it's been important that we start small, improve the model, but also really tease out where are the inefficiencies in our supply chain? Because in order to make this work, in order to actually not only remove the cost that processors and ranchers incur through the quote waste of a hide, but we want to actually get to a point where we are paying the ranchers $25 a hide. So how do we build the system from the ground up so that we've created a product, a product market, a demand, a supply chain system that will support that dollar amount back to the rancher? Just going back to the processes and the conversation we were having just a moment ago, did you find that the processors were willing to engage in that conversation or, or did they just kind of think, well, this is a crazy idea. We want nothing to do with this because this is just complicating the things that we're trying to do day to day? Yes and no. I think the journey to success is filled with no's, but the right people have come to the table. And I've been very humbled in the last year of the caliber of people who have been attracted to this project and their level of commitment. So plenty of no's, uh, plenty of fixed mindsets, and then also just the right amount of co-conspirators who see the possibility. And when you talk about scaling the operation, how do you see the future? Do you see the future being a, a company of yours which is constantly expanding and expanding, you know, whether that's an individual company of your own or cooperative with these other ranches, or do you see scale by replication? I see scale by replication, honestly. I think that there, you know, one of the most influential books I've ever read is Limits to Growth. I have always operated in a way that acknowledges and monitors for where we've hit that precipice where you know there's a there's a point of no return you get too big to actually produce positive outcomes so what is that point we're currently building that model and i've got a fantastic coo who's sort of helping me think about this and what i really see as being the most beneficial way to do this work is to build this business, build this supply chain in a regional manner, honoring what those limits to growth are, and then taking this blueprint that we are creating and handing it to others to do this work in their region because they will have the context, they will have the relationships, um, and their community will most benefit from them leading that charge. So in that way, I've been greatly influenced by the success that the Savory Institute has had through their model of pollination. You've got these hubs all over the world leading these sorts of holistic management trainings because it makes sense in their regions. So that's how I approach this project. We will scale to the point in which we need to, to economically make this a a beneficial project. 
but um, we will honor the limits of that growth. There was a time, wasn't there, in the not too distant past when even in Western societies, humans were using every part of an animal, when families provided themselves with the food and fiber that they needed from the land. And I just wonder how we can get there again in the context of a modern society, you know, how we unpick these systems that we've now spent decades building on specialization and separation to reintegrate the food and fiber production in a way that makes sense for today's markets and communities? It's such a huge question that I think our generation is grappling with. I learned so much from being a land manager who is being trained in holistic management. So this, I come back to this. I think that all organizations, I think that all CEOs, I think that all designers, I think that all people who are creating products, which will then dictate the supply chains, should all be trained in holistic management. And, you know, there's holistic management trainings for farmers and ranchers and land managers. There's holistic management training for CEOs and executives. I think everybody, I think even local politics, I think county commissioners and board of commissioners should also have holistic management training. I don't think without that mindset, we can reintroduce this concept of holism. Because where we exist right now, as you very succinctly put, is a very separatized and compartmentalized supply chain in which such a tragedy can exist, in which we have completely let go of reverence for whole carcass utilization. I mean, what a disrespect to the animal, what a disrespect to the land, and cultures much wiser than ours uh, would never have done that. And so I think this is a cultural mindset we're dealing with. And to kind of bring it back to like, why design? Like, you know, why bags? Why art? Because I think it has a way of communicating cultural ethos in a way that sort of a rational conversation about economics won't quite get to people. I think that there is a cultural reverence for whole carcass utilization for natural systems that has to be reintegrated and art will be one of the ways that we communicate that and get people to think differently, consume differently, act differently. I think that's an incredible way of putting it, an incredibly powerful way of putting it, where you know we have a system which is built on separation and segregation of uh, siloization of different uh, elements of food chains, different elements of fiber chains. And the revolution that you're talking about, the resistance, is about creating a new sense of beauty, using art to create something beautiful and then to tell a beautiful story about the way that that thing has been produced in order to, to disrupt that market to create change i think the fashion industry has so much to learn from the successes of the farm to table movement that we saw through the 90s and the 2000s uh, when i was in college i worked for an organization called outstanding in the field and we toured the country throwing farm dinners across america and at that time i also grew up in northern california when alice waters was you know getting Chez Panisse off the ground and so i was surrounded by this sort of a food movement and it was ingrained in me i don't think it's any surprise i'm doing what i'm doing in the world because i was exposed to this so young but the fashion industry has yet to really learn from that movement of the farm to table movement in which farmers and ranchers became rock stars chefs were putting them on the menus they were taking people out of the restaurant putting them on the farm and reconnecting people to the land and the land stewards. And that is what I aim to do with Range Revolution. We need to reconnect fashion consumers to the natural systems that produce these incredible natural materials that most of them are byproducts 
of land regeneration. And we need to make the farmers and the ranchers these rock stars. And the products as well. And the products themselves. Let's let the leather speak for itself. Why do we have to coat leather in a polyurethane coating, then stamp it to look like leather again so that we hide any sign of imperfection or realism? I think that especially in, in fashion, but again, this comes back to this enculturation we experience. And I, and I can speak to this as a young woman of the 90s. The quest for perfection has been pervasive and it has been damaging. And we see this leather is a perfect way to tease this out. Any sign of a scratch, any sign of a bite mark, any sign of a life lived by cattle is deemed this flaw we must hide. And how can we tease that out into how we have a cultural narrative about ourselves? If you smile and you've got too much life showing in your eyes, you better get a shot of Botox so that we don't know you've lived a life of smiling. Like those versions of imperfections are bullshit. I think that we should be looking at natural fibers for the beautiful imperfections that they carry with them and not coating them in polyurethane. And one of the issues that we talk about a lot in terms of a regenerative food chain is investment. The need for investment models and investors who understand how regen agriculture works. So thinking about regenerative fibre and establishing resilient supply chains and infrastructure, where is it that the greatest risks lie for potential investors and how can those risks best be mitigated? Let me try and approach this a couple ways. I, in the last two years, I think one of the greatest risks, again, is a mindset risk in which we believe the greatest, newest innovation is our solution to solving climate change. And a lot of these investment firms, they're looking for something that is patentable and they are looking something with the greatest ROI. And right now, ROI really only speaks to an economic ROI. It doesn't actually include ecological or social returns. Typically, they might say they're an impact investment firm, but still they quantify ROI in terms of the financial ROI. So I think that the pervasive mindset that a new technological advancement will ultimately solve what has been our disconnection to natural systems is a huge risk right now in investment. That's what I'm observing. I read this great thing recently by Adam Grant, and I want to just read it because I think it's pertinent to this. Because financial trends involve human behavior and human beliefs, on a global scale, the most powerful trends won't make sense until it becomes too late to profit from them. By the time investors formulate an understanding that gives them the confidence to invest, the investment opportunity has already passed. And I feel that way about investment in regenerative agriculture right now. There's a lot of talk. People still don't quite understand how they are going to capitalize on these natural systems and rebuilding of these decentralized supply chains. And the ones who are really the quickest and, and who will ultimately benefit the most be the early adopters who understand before there is uh, enough clarity. The clarity will come. I think ways that we mitigate risk, um, I mean, all investors are thinking about diversifying their portfolios. Um, but I think really when it comes to mitigation of risks, it comes down to who the founder is that you invest in. Like, let's be real, any early stage business, there are so many junctures on the path to success. You have no control over how things will go. What you do have control over is the type of founder you invest in. And I believe that 
partnering with people who are willing to buck the status quo to build what is a future we can imagine, but we can't yet see, those are the founders to invest in. And also I've learned on this journey, um, investing in founders who have the humility to acknowledge where their weaknesses lie and then build teams around them that support their weaknesses. So on my journey of the startup, I'm quite aware of what areas you know I have weaknesses in and I have brought in incredible teammates to support me in those ways. But I, I think that partnering with founders who have truly revolutionary ways of looking at the world that embrace holism, that is how an investor will mitigate risk. This is actually ties into why range and why focus on handbags. When I mentioned diversifying a portfolio, if you want to be a regenerative investor, I believe you've got to invest in the regenerative food system. And anyone who works in food systems understands that whether it's producers or distribution models, you're working on tiny margins, but those have value outside of profit. We've confused these terms, value and profit. So my approach, say for example, Cassad Family Farms, which is our farm here in Oregon, it has a very small profit margin it operates on. That's not the point of Cassad Family Farms. There is value in the food we produce and the um, services that we offer in the form of nutrient-dense food and localized food systems. But we need capital to keep that mechanism rolling. So I'm building Range Revolution, which does have the potential for a large ROI. I mean, the handbag industry is set to be a $78 billion industry by 2028. It operates on 48 to 78% margins compared to, you know, farming or food distribution, which could be 3%. So that is what I'm talking about when I talk about diversifying a portfolio. You need to have the businesses that do have a financial ROI that I believe need to then fund and support the other very valuable projects that will have a larger, I mean, a smaller ROI. We're probably not talking about venture capital and people who are just sort of, you know, working remotely from miles away and never really have any sense of the business, but people who are genuinely working, investors who are genuinely working with people who are making that business itself successful on the ground. Yeah, I think there's a lot of different kinds of investors. I've had the most luck in working with angel investors. But that's not to say that there are not institutional and VC firms who cannot like structure themselves to be in on this in a holistic way. I just think that we are in an awkward time of transition in which we have not adopted a regenerative mindset into economics yet. Or there are a small group of people who have. But I would say the industry by and large is still not thinking very regeneratively in a financial way. And on this same theme, I suppose, where is it that the investment is most needed? Is it in individual businesses like your own or is it in trying to uh, to set up the infrastructure that supports those businesses? It's both, of course. You know, I can really speak to the West Coast perspective here in the United States. I mean, we need a large amount of reinvestment into creating and bolstering decentralized food systems as in meat processing plants. Again, this is the biggest bottleneck that anyone in the cattle industry will tell you about and it is processing capacity. So I think the largest amount of investment is going to be needed in expanding processing capacity um, in the form of beef processors, also tanneries, 
and also rebuilding manufacturing capacity regionally. Now, you've talked in the past about UGG, and you know we've talked a lot today about your business and the way that you're trying to scale your business. UGG is a big company. So as an example of a large clothing business that's developing their own supply of regenerative hides, I wonder why are they impressive to you? UGG has impressed me with how they are approaching building their regenerative supply chain because they have chosen to invest into training their producers in holistic management and subsidizing the monitoring costs to monitor their landscapes. UGG understands what I understand. And that's why I've been building the supply chain for Range Revolution because what I saw coming three years ago was there would be a scramble for what is a very small supply chain currently because we've got major corporations now saying we want regenerative materials doesn't mean the supply chain exists yet. Most of those companies are not thinking holistically in building the supply chain. They're just trying to get their hands on the materials as quickly as they can. UGG has done something different. UGG is investing in building up the supply of the regenerative materials they need to build their regenerative products. That is a regenerative mindset in an organization I'm quite impressed by. And that is what Range Revolution sort of provides as an opportunity to some other brands who are saying, you know what, we really want to support this regenerative agriculture supply chain. And our value proposition is, look, we've been doing the work for the past three years to build up this small supply chain that has the opportunity to scale. And we need you to partner with us to build up this regional supply chain. That is the opportunity right now. Organizations have a chance to not just build regenerative products, but to build a regenerative mindset and how they're going to grow the supply chain in August thinking that way. We've talked quite a lot during the course of the programme about your approach to regenerative systems, to holistic systems, about the manufacturing process, I suppose. Now, we're coming towards the end of the programme, so let's move on to the point at which your products meet the customer. Uh, And so I want to talk about fashion, the point where fabrics meet art, meet the public, as we touched on a bit earlier. You've been to a lot of fashion shows. How have your products been received there? The designs themselves have been wonderfully received. Our design ethos is timeless. So we're not chasing trends. We're building truly timeless designs in which the beauty of the design speaks for itself and it lets the material speak for itself. Now, leather as a climate solution is a value proposition that is either very exciting to people who understand the possibility of regenerative agriculture, or it is appalling to somebody who believes that veganism is the only way to save the planet. Now, I'm not new to this narrative because I've been in food systems, so I understand the mindset. And it's a wonderfully controversial thing to say, leather as a climate solution, because it incites a reaction, which then inspires conversation. And that's all I can aim to do is to help create a bridge and have conversations with people who live very far away from the reality that I know and understand on land. When I spend time in New York and I'm at trade shows in New York and I see the vegan narrative is so strong, I understand it's because these people live very far away from what we see on land. And so thus, I feel like it is 
part of my mission and my job to build bridges to have those conversations. And when we've spoken in the past, you you know, you've talked about those bridges that you're building and they're big bridges and they take a long time to build. And so, you, you know, working your way um, through this vegan narrative, kind of one person at a time, and that's, that's going to take a while. So when you're thinking about the proportion of people who are coming to your stand and reacting positively versus the number of people who are going past, where, where does that proportion lie? I would say at this last show I was at in New York, I would say it was probably 75% a, a positive reaction and a, a kind of coming to an understanding together through conversation. And then there was about that, you know, 25% of people who um, will just never hear what I have to say. And, and that's okay. If we shift even just 10%, of a cultural narrative. I mean, that person will then go out into the world and be like, did you know that managing cattle in a certain way can actually mitigate against the massive impacts of drought? Like that conversation happening around a dinner table or at the next event, that form of pollination, that shifts culture. One of the things that we found is that even if it is a relatively small percentage of people who are uh, sort of part of that vegan narrative, that environmental narrative, which is particularly anti-cattle, they have a big voice. And, you know, they're very powerful in terms of being able to get their voice across in the media. And I wonder whether you feel that there is a change taking place in the USA at the moment. There's absolutely a counter narrative that is happening. And I think that there are some key pop culture things that have happened over the past few years such as the movie Kiss the Ground, which has now reached, you know, tens of millions of people. Um, and as I opened up people to this concept of what the power of regenerative agriculture could be. And in terms of, of meat, I have to reference this. I mean, we're seeing, I think, what is the steady decline of what was a very excited movement around impossible foods and beyond meat products. I mean, we are seeing in the marketplace those products are declining in their popularity. And again, I think it's too simplistic of thinking. Like plant-based still doesn't solve our problem if it's produced in a commodity, you know, extractive monoculture system. Um, we're still not thinking holistically. And I think that part of the narrative that is shifting, for better or worse, is sort of a distrust around what a centralized media has started to tell us. And again, for better or worse, that questioning of narratives of this time is, I think, leading people to question what has been fed to us, that plant-based is better. And don't get it twisted. I We are vegetable growers. I, a huge part of my diet is vegetables, and I believe in eating less and better meat. But in our arid landscape, if people have an opportunity to get to know land managers who manage and produce regenerative outcomes, and we can show them how we do that through the use of cattle in a brittle environment, once they see and understand that, they become our greatest supporters and they want to tell all of their friends. So it's really about opening up our farms. It's about opening up the outcomes we're producing and showing people. Ranchers and farmers can stay very siloed in their little worlds. And I think showing the world how these ranchers are actually some of the greatest conservationists you will ever meet and telling those stories 
is how we then continue the shift of that narrative. Kate, quite apart from, you know, the practical change that you're delivering through your business decisions, you've clearly thought about this, you know, the philosophy of this, you know, a lot over the course of the last few years. So if I give you a magic wand and you can use it to help deliver holistic supply chains, what would you do? What would you change? Okay, magic wand to create regenerative and holistic supply chains. Number one, impact-driven investors should invest in founders like me and companies like Range Revolution. That would be my first wish. And then my second wish would be for the large organizations or the investors who aren't quite here yet. I really would like to see the big brands partnering with smaller brands and collaborating with people who are on the ground doing the work to grow the supply chain that they will ultimately need to scale so that they themselves can have a regenerative line. That is what I would like to see. I would like to see more organizations taking an approach like UGG has done and invest directly in the resilience of the producers so that the producers have the support they need to implement best practices. And we are directly making those producers more profitable. I can't say it enough. The way that our systems of processing and aggregation and distribution exist right now, they make ranchers and food producers operate on impossible margins. And when you have a demographic of people who control a majority of the land in the world, operating from a place of scarcity, they have not enough brain space to apply creative thinking to produce regenerative outcomes. So if what we all aim to see is regenerative outcomes in this conversation of regenerative agriculture, regenerative supply chains, none of it exists without producers who are well supported creating profitable outcomes. So anything that we aim to create in the regenerative sphere must begin with the producer in mind. And that's the mindset that I hope to help pollinate through Range Revolution, being really a producer-first organization. What a great place to end. And I you know, wish you the world of luck with your co-conspirators and your revolution, <laughs> the resistance that you're leading. Just finally, Kate, if people want to find you, where do they look? So Range Revolution will be launching direct to consumer the fall of 2023. As such, our website's under construction, but we do have a landing page with a contact form at rangerevolution.com. And you can also follow our farm. We just started a YouTube to share more of our farm, our practices, our regenerative outcomes. And you can find us on YouTube at First Generation Organic Farming. Thanks so much, Kate. It's been so fascinating. But that's all we have time for. I'd like to thank my guest, Kate havstag Kassat from Range Revolution. If you've enjoyed listening, please come back and listen to more. Tell your friends, like us, review us, and share our links. Farmgate is funded by Sankalpa, and you can join the conversation on Twitter by searching for Farmgate Podcast. I've been Finn Locustain. Bye for now.